Ready for the interview And if you get a cue Live on the laptop Watch what I'm gonna do Welcome to the show Let them know we got a point of view Hey, yo Let's have a combo Say what you feel Be real, that's the motto Real talk, pronto Doctor D, PhD Hit the intro Hold up, wait Gotta be social Network global Home for the locals Gotta be social Network global Home for the locals Okay, Philip, it's time. We're going to talk about your life. <laughs> All right. So I, I was drawn in by your story of being a tech CEO and then spiraling depression and how Amazon, working at the Amazon warehouse, saved you from that. Let's rewind this story. Yeah, totally. How we, yeah, let's just go from the beginning, you know? Yeah, totally. So I was basically raised in the U.S. and always had the American dream that I'd, you, you know, grow up and do amazing things. My parents came to the United States as immigrants. You know, they were white collar workers in Taiwan. When they came here, it's the classic story. They cleaned houses for below minimum wage. My first job in America was at a subway for below minimum wage, you know, and so the whole dream was actually to get out. You know, my middle schools and high schools had metal detectors on the doors. It was just like the wire, but not like that extreme. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> but I just wanted out so bad. So I thought, you know, I'd be maybe a medical doctor or something. And I ended up being a computer scientist, which I loved. Right. And so after college, I moved out to Seattle and worked for Microsoft for 12 years. And then I joined Meta as the second employee in its Seattle office. And it grew to about 120 people in two years at which point I took 12 people with me um, to start the Meta London office, the engineering office there. And I grew that as its site director from 12 people to 600 people in five years. So that was like this amazing growth. It was an amazing time. I came back to the US after living in London five years with the family and started a local nonprofit called OuterRay, which focused on, if you can believe it, rapid testing. Okay, <laughs> oh, this wow. Was yeah, this was before COVID, right? So you had to explain to people like there are these things called rapid tests. The one you're most familiar with might be the pregnancy test, but there's ones for malaria and for HIV and stuff. And so we were funded by the Gates Foundation, basically. And I was doing that and leading it as the CEO. And it was a great company with great people. But, you know, after two, two and a half years, I was really struggling with depression. And for the first time in my life, I really struggled with compulsive eating, you know, mm. and I've got to admit, like, I've always been sympathetic to, you know, mental health things. But, uh, you know, prior to this, I had always been slightly skeptical when people say that they're they're OCD, because part of me felt like, well, just touch the lamppost, things will be fine. You know right, what I mean? Right, right. But, you know, this is the first time where I had compulsive eating where I couldn't stop, you know, and I really sought therapy. I tried medication. And after a while, I talked to my team and I just said, look, I'm sorry, but I have to step down because I've got to change something. You know, I got to change something to make this better. I was staying in bed until maybe 2 p.m., 6 p.m. every day. On some bad weekends, I would be out of bed for a total of maybe six hours the whole weekend. And so it was really spiraling pretty bad. So my whole thought was, okay, it must be the job of being CEO that's stressing me out. The fact that if I don't get the next grant, we're going to have to lay somebody off, right? And so my mental model was, if I just quit this stressful job, surely two months later, I'm going to feel better, right? And indeed, the first month was magical. You know, it's everything you think it will be. So it's skiing on weekdays. It's like shopping when no one else is there. You know, it's magical. <laughs> 
And then after like four or five months, I found myself really just spiraling again. And this time I had to face the reality, you know, like I was blaming stressful work as the core of what I thought was causing depression. And it turns out without the work, things actually in some ways got even worse. I felt kind of useless. You know, I felt kind of like, like most people, you know, I've been working my whole life, right? Like I never had more than a few weeks vacation. So my whole thought was, if I go without work, it's going to be magical because work's always tough and it's going to yeah. be this beautiful thing. But after a while, you know, when you figure out, you know, you think you're going to call up friends, get together, but whoever you call, they're at work, you know? So, <laughs> <That's right>. like, <laughs> so the whole idea of you sitting around by yourself, like feeling like you're useless in society, like that really started stressing me in a different way. And I found myself spiraling. And so one day I woke up and I thought, you know, I can't keep getting up at 2 p.m. or 6 p.m. I got to do something here. And so I just browsed the Amazon page mostly, I mean, for a few reasons. One is I I wanted structure in my life because I think waking up at 2 p.m. every day is just not a formula for success, right? I was honestly, if I'm honest, I was a little doubtful of all these media exposés of Amazon because I've been a customer for like 15 years. And I was sort of thinking, how will you become America's largest employer? You know, at a time in America where there are two open jobs for every one job seeker, right? How right. are you going to be America's largest employer if people are peeing on themselves all day or if like that people are falling over dead, right? So part of me felt like it can't be that bad, right? So I just went onto the website and you know, the craziest part is I was clicking around the jobs and after applying, which they don't even ask past employers, they don't ask any of that. It's basically, have you been convicted of a felony before? What's your name? Here's your social security number. And within two minutes, I got an email PDF with a full written job offer. <laughs> and I had never in my what? life gotten a job like that way. You know, no calling references, nothing. Yeah. Just pow, here's a PDF, right? And so I honestly kind of fell into it without realizing that I would, that I would you know, be given a job. But once I got that, I thought, I'm just going to be determined to make it through peak season. You know, normal jobs, 40 hours a week at Amazon, four days, four 10-hour days, right? But I had applied at the beginning of November. And so I wanted to join right before peak season, where they do five mandatory days a week or else you get fired. It's 11 to an 11 and a half hours a day, right? And so I wanted to make it through peak to make it through the toughest time of it. And so that's how I ended up there. Wow. <laughs> There's a lot going on there, Philip. I mean, wow. So let, let me rewind a little bit. When you were uh, in your tech career and you started having uh, this depression, did you have an idea like where this was starting to manifest? Did you start having a moment where you're like, something's happening to me that I can't explain? Like, what was that moment like? Yeah. So for me, in my work, the first sign of things going badly is I start sleeping very poorly. Mm. So a lot of times, you know, I have been the manager of teams before. I've been individual contributors where I report to other people. But I found being a manager especially uh, difficult. You know, when you're not the manager, you can blame everything on the manager. Sure. It's basically like, <laughs> oh, this team sucks because the right. manager is bad, right? <laughs> yep. Once you're the manager, like when I was running the London site, you know, it had grown to 600 people, right? And what you realize is like the crap actually flows upward. You yeah. know, the classic image with like the top bird pooping on the lower birds yep. and the lower birds poop on the lower birds and all the crap flows to the bottom. It actually in some ways goes the other way, which is when you run a site that has 600 people, 
the only reason you are pulled into to something is it's a problem no one below you can solve. Right. Like that's why you're pulled in, right? So like all sorts of crazy things get pulled to the top there. And so I found that sort of stuff stressful. My sleep would be the first sign of things going bad. Yeah. And then eventually I think just, I start thinking, sort of spiraling or ruminating on suffering in the world. Things just feel mm. grayer all the time. But you never had, you didn't have anything related, like depression before this, correct? Oh, uh, that's a great question. And I'm glad you asked because yeah. I have had seasonal depression seasonal. every okay. winter for probably 20 years. You know? Okay. So it was and, a thing. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, what's hard to differentiate about that is everybody living in Seattle kind of easily says like, oh yeah, it's seasonal. Right. It's the winter. Yeah. Right. Of course. And so if you've ever watched Frasier or anything like that, you'd think yes. there would be reason for everybody to be depressed. Right. And so it was a little hard to differentiate that for a while from just generally everybody accepts that the winners are a little lower here. Yeah. I mean, I'm in Washington state myself, so I, I, I totally understand the sleep part. What do you think, what was causing the sleep to start changing for you? Yeah. Yeah. I think most of the stress I had around work was either anticipating hard conversations mm. with people or ruminating on conversations I just had with people. So like a key part of my personality is I want everybody to like me, you know? Mm. And that's easy when you don't manage anybody. You just like tell a few jokes, you get along, people <laughs> like you, right? Um, but once you start managing teams, uh, I think it was Abraham Lincoln or somebody who said that, you know, you can please some of the people some of the time, right? <laughs> and right. like, <laughs> and exactly so what right. ends up happening is if you have dozens of people working for you, someone doesn't like you, you know what I mean? Someone thinks you've made terrible decisions. Mm. And for me, that feeling of being not liked or not being able to make everybody happy was really difficult. You know, one of the points of feedback that I was given when I was leading the London site for Meta was the head of engineering told me, look, Philip, when you run large teams, you got to essentially break some eggs. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I just don't have the right personality to do that. I think that that's why I'm probably not built for running large teams because I don't want to break eggs, you know? Yeah. And the truth of it is like, if you're going to run a large thing, you're going to have to choose a direction. And some people are going to think it was a terrible mistake. Yeah. Kind of this uh, I, I, I hear this, it sounds pervasive, like in the Silicon Valley talk of break things and kind of deal with it later. You know, right. that mantra yes. that I wonder how many people in your position actually felt like you, but didn't yeah. do anything about it. Yeah, totally. And I bet it's pervasive because, you know, stepping down, there's a real fear to it. You know what I mean? Like people think, oh, yeah, like you could just you could just quit anytime and go do something else. You know what I mean? Basically, right. take your toys home and go do something else. But the fact is, when people face up to I guess here's the thing. Most people, myself included think of our career as a climb throughout life. You yeah. know what I mean? Like you're trying to better yourself. Uh, you know, I started at a subway, you know, the dream there would have been to manage like the shift, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so you're always trying to do a little better. And the problem with that mindset, which isn't a growth mindset, it's sort of like a long haul mindset, right? Like a marathon right. mindset is that any step back feels like it could be the start of a long roll downhill. 
You know what I mean? Like yeah. you think yeah. if I step off this train right now, you know, like I had a great manager from my Microsoft days tell me that when he was managing me, he was actually in the middle of getting divorced, you know, and it was tremendously stressful. And I asked him because he had worked at Microsoft since the 90s. He could probably buy a small county. You know, right, I was telling right, him, like, right. why, why don't you just why didn't you just quit? And he was like, you know, honestly, Philip, things in my career were going so well. I was just waiting for the second shoe to drop. It felt like something had to break. And what broke was my marriage. You know, mm. and so it's really interesting to think that, you know, sometimes, especially when things look like they're going really well. Right. That's when we take our eyes off the ball somewhere else. And then we find that, you know, sometimes you bend the reed, it comes back. Sometimes you break yeah. the reed, you know. Talk about the the monetary aspect of it. Obviously, you're working in this environment, you're making a lot of money. Right. And how does the money play into uh, the depression or the difficulty in leaving something yeah. like this? Absolutely. And that's a great question. I'm glad you asked because most people feel uncomfortable talking about that, right? Oh, like, I think you got to go head first into this stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so so I'll give you the background, right? So I go from uh, making below minimum wage at a subway to getting my first job at Microsoft, you know, straight out of college, right? It was more money than I ever seen. I bought a Honda Accord. I was like, this is going to be <laughs> like smooth sailing, that's right? right. And, and, you know, I was so naive. So within my first year at Microsoft, the stock went from, I think, 60 to $119, right? And so I phoned my now wife, then fiance, I phoned her and I like did this naive math in my head, like, hey, if if I just do this four more years, then I'm retired, you know? Yeah. And so what happened is that was right before the dot-com crash, right? Oh, yeah. And so I worked at Microsoft 12 years. And can you believe when I finally left Microsoft 12 years later, I sold my final uh, seven-eighths of my stock. So most of my stock, right? The stock had gone up 15 cents in those 12 years, okay? <laughs> so <laughs> I... I, I had made $1,600 before tax, right? So what I did was I like sold seven eighths of the stock. I went straight to the Microsoft company store and I bought an Xbox 360, a driving wheel and like Forza 3. And I thought I had like made it. You right? made it, yeah. Yeah. And so one month later I joined Facebook and honestly within that first year, you know, the company IPO'd, right? And I made a million dollars. Yeah. And what I tell the young people at Facebook, because most people who joined Facebook back then, like the average age was 27. I was probably, I don't know, 34, 35, right? The average person there, it was their first job. And what I told them is, look, like I was working at Microsoft 12 years just as hard. I'm not a smarter person here than I was there. I'm not working harder here than I was there, but like a thousand times the money dropped on my head one day, yeah. right? And so I thought like, oh, this is going to be magical. But here's the thing most people don't understand which is the happiest moment for you money-wise is when you have that Powerball ticket and you're looking at the screen and you've matched five out of six balls. I guarantee you that is the happiest moment. Mm. You're waiting for that last ball to drop, right? And everybody who hasn't had the ball drop thinks the happier moments come after the last ball. Then it's like parties all the time. It's, you know, it's the fire festival gone right. Right. right? It's like <laughs> music, music all the time, right? Yeah. But what actually happens is you realize later, no, the magic moment was when that final ball was about to match on your ticket. And the reason is 
everything is ahead, the possibilities, the change, all the things that you were blaming in your life were wrong, right, is about to change. And so your dreams are hinged on that last ball matching. Mm -hmm. And when it matches, it's like this glorious moment. Wow, this is amazing, right? But what you find out like a year or two in, and of course, nobody believes this. So I can say this all I want. But <laughs> like, you've heard this forever from lot of winners right. and stuff. They'll of say course. like, money doesn't buy happiness. And it, it, everybody kind of just rolls their eyes, right? But the truth is, everybody keeps saying that because what you find a year or two later is the things you were blaming on not having the money. Actually, most of the problems are within, you know what I mean? Like most of the calls come from within the house is what the truth yes. is. And so if you were a naturally grateful, happy person before you won the Powerball, you're probably going to be like a naturally grateful person that now is very generous, right? If you were the type of person that blamed much of your life's problems on not having the money and you're kind of like not grateful and you're pretty upset about things, you're just going to find that the money makes you like a bigger version of that. Yeah. So for me, I really thought having grown up as an immigrant in the US, I really thought that my parents dream for me was this, right? Right. Like they they took much lesser jobs coming to this country, $600 and like four suitcases, right? They wanted me to have this. And I think they were very well intentioned. And I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth and somehow say this is a bad thing, right? Right. But I will say that having the flexibility of not having to work all the time really makes you face like, what are you about? You know, what is your contribution to this world? Do people even need you? You know what I mean? Like, wow. like if, if beautiful to be needed right to have somebody depend on you to have a have a role somewhere and it doesn't have to be like a full paying job with a man i mean you could be volunteering somewhere right and people need you right yeah and so like what is the thing that you're needed for and that's what i had to face that i didn't have an answer for for myself it's kind of funny it's like once you take away all the variables that you thought about that made you unhappy and you say, well, this will take, this will actually ch fix everything. Yeah. Then you go inward and you're like, it didn't fix everything. It, no. it, it actually made me really question me at this point. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's like the Stoics said, you know, like humanity hasn't gotten a lot wiser in the last two, right. 3000 years, you know, like on top of the temple of Apollo, right? They could choose two things to write on it. And they wrote two sentences. The first one was know thyself, which is like pretty profound if you right. think about it. Right. And the second one was nothing in excess. Like that was the two <laughs> things they chose to write, right? Right. And today, if you look at our modern society, if people just applied those two phrases, I think we'd be in a lot happier place to be Probably, honest. yeah. <laughs> right? And so I feel like I myself was so naive and I'm still trying to learn this life wisdom, you know, that the money's not going to save you. The power is not going to save you, right? You need to be saved from yourself. Mm. I mean, this is powerful, Philip. I, I can see why you wanted to tell the story, man. Yeah. It's really powerful. So let's fast forward. So Amazon, your interesting job offer, peak of the holiday season, day one. Yeah. What happened? Yeah. So day one, you show up. So prior to day one, mm -hmm. you know, mandatory drug test, right? So okay. you go in and I, I was all ready to pee in a cup, but it's one of these mouth things. So that went smoothly. Day one, you show up and it's new employee or orientation, right? And so 
I had in my mind, you know, when I joined Microsoft, when I enjoyed, uh, when I joined Meta, it was the first day was really exciting. It was like, hey, welcome to the new company. And then it's the big Kool-Aid drinking day, right? It's like, yeah. oh, here's the, here's the mission of the company. You show up at Amazon and you file into this room and it's all like HR policies and like <laughs> blah, 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 right? <laughs> and the kicker for me was uh, at lunch break, right before lunch break, they wheeled out the gifts for joining, right? The new employee gifts, right? And so when I was at Microsoft, Microsoft, it was like t-shirts and stuff. When I joined Facebook, it was like, here's an iPhone and here's a MacBook Pro, right? Wow. And so I didn't expect that, of course. But what yeah. I did get was way crazy. So literally everybody as a new employee got a gift of a gallon-sized Ziploc bag, okay? And inside it were literally these items. One was a cloth mask with the Amazon logo on it for your COVID, right? And then you got one packet of like powdered sports drink. Okay. And then uh, one heat and cool compress for you to use in the microwave for the muscle aches and stuff like this. And this was literally the items in this plastic bag that I got. And so I was so used to being spoiled by being in companies when they say, hey, people are the most important asset, you know, and for these big tech companies, that's true. Like if you have the right people, you're going to do uh, things much better, right? At Amazon, you know, you know what the most important asset is because get this, the metal detectors are on the way out. Oh, <laughs> they aren't on the way in. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> oh yeah, because the most commonly stolen item is phones from the warehouse. Okay, Whoa. the most commonly stolen because you want a high value item that you can pocket, basically, right? Mm. So like all the metal detectors are on your way out. So that right there tells you like, no, the people aren't the most important asset here. Wow. The most important asset is the Samsung, you know, next generation phone is the most important asset. Wow. So, I mean, this is mind blowing. So, you know, I've heard all these stories about working in the Amazon warehouse and, you know, all the AI and the bots and then people and having to walk really far oh, yeah. to get the things. What was that oh, yeah. environment like? Yeah, totally. So let me tell you, I worked at the flagship warehouse BFI4 in Seattle, right? And so it is south of its uh, Amazon's headquarters by, I don't know, 18 miles or something in Kent. And so that warehouse is about a third of a mile wide. And so people who've played sports or whatever, they understand it a third of a mile, but yeah. I like didn't have a good appreciation for that. So roughly a third of a mile means like during break, if you need to walk to the restroom and back, which Amazon is proud to tell you, you're always welcome to go to the bathroom because they had a lot of people <laughs> complaining about peeing in bottles and stuff. Right, so right. they said, fine, you can go whenever you want. But for me to walk pretty quickly to the bathroom and back to my station was two minutes each way. Right. And so that's at like a Manhattan pace walking, right? So it is a huge warehouse and like you are welcome to leave your station if you want. But like you said, your metrics are being monitored, right? right. So if, if you're going to be gone four minutes to use the restroom, like you, you better make up those four minutes in your stats, <laughs> right? Uh, but you're welcome to go at lunch break or whatever. Like you're welcome to go then too. But I do think like this whole idea of being on a clock, you know, and the irony of the robots, you know, here's the deal with the robots is on one hand, I found the work very dehumanizing. You know, mm. I personally lifted, I think, you know, I was working 11 and 11 and a half hours, right? I was lifting about 300 boxes an hour. So if they were, let's say four or five pounds a box, which is a small box, small Amazon yeah. box, right? If they average four or five pounds a box, that's me personally lifting six tons of packages a day, right? Like, like day in, day out, right? And so that's dehumanizing work. So on one hand, I think nobody should have to work like that. We should have robots replace all those people, right? right? But on the other, here's the struggle. When a robot comes in to replace a person, 
that robot's income, if that's what you call it, you know, that robot's productivity, it doesn't go to the person replaced. It's not like you go home and we have Bill the robot here taken over for you. And so you're good, right? Yeah. No, it's the inventor of the robot. It's the deployer of the robot. It's the owner of the means to production that actually keeps whatever that robot makes. And so that's the real problem is on one hand, you have this dehumanizing work, which I hope is replaced by robots one day because yeah. it's tough work. But on the other hand, I also think we don't have the laws and the uh, and the regulations that protect people against the problem that when robots replace them, you know, what are they going to go do, right? Yeah, I think that's it's kind of the interesting question is that often it's said like, well, there'll be other jobs created for people with robots. It's not going to take away jobs. But then the other aspect, too, is to say, well, this frees people up to do the things they actually want to do. But then a lot of people don't know what they want to do, actually. Absolutely. So how do you, you combat that? Absolutely. And, you know, I'm so glad you asked this because someone like you, right, talented at doing things like this, you're a great interviewer, you have a passion for what you want to learn, right? You you ask the right questions, you learn with people. Someone like you will always have a job, meaning right. like you will go and create your own things. And yeah. that's beautiful. But like you said, not everybody's like that. And here's the problem with most journalists when they write these breathless articles about like, if we give everybody a UBI, like a basic income, yeah. then, you know, they'll go make the documentary film they always wanted to make. And that's just not true. No way. It's because the people <laughs> writing those articles, that's their dream. You know, that's their <laughs> dream, right? Like the actual American dream, honestly, most people, it's the Wally future. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where they're scoot scooting around on these carts and like everybody sipping this giant soda and Netflixing the whole day. That's most of it. If you look at the stats of where our young men are these days, mm -hmm. men in their 20s, right? Yes. Overwhelmingly, they are playing video games. It right. used to be that they were like watching TV. Now they're playing video games, right? That is the dream, you know? And so when you look at movies like Ready Player One, you yep. know, where everybody basically starts playing games all the time. That, unfortunately, I think is where the bulk of it will go. And so I do think like there is this, this, this dystopia that we might be heading toward where we think it's going to free people up to do amazing things. And like 10% of people will do Some amazing people. things. Like that Some is for people. sure. Yeah. yeah, right, right. But like, think of all the people you went to high school with. And it's sort of like, well, right, like, uh, right. So, so I do think like, that's a legit real problem. Like, I don't begrudge anybody from watching Netflix eight hours a day. Of like, course. I am not yeah. judging that at all. All I'm saying is when you watch TV four hours straight, you know, that feeling after you get up mm. of like, you're slightly guilty a little bit. You're like, oh, <laughs> what have I done with my time? You know what I mean? <laughs> Like imagine that multiplied by 365, yeah. right? Like you're, you are talking a dystopia, not a utopia there. Yeah. I I've had this discussion with people and I think it's like, well, if you look at maybe just like the bell curve of it, 10% of people are going to become incredibly productive and 80% of people are going to do nothing with more time. And 10% right. of people are going to do some bad stuff with you. Yeah, totally. They don't have time when they got a lot of time, they're going to do bad yeah. shit, man. Absolutely. You know, so the society is not going to become more productive in the population right. and large. Yeah. It's, it's just going to free people up to be kind of like mindless a lot. Yes. Which Absolutely. I think we're not talking about that enough. Yeah. Absolutely. I think you're spot on because here's the problem. People on the far right judge people without work by saying they're lazy, right? Right. But laziness is not the only reason why people aren't working. That's right. That's the key, right? Like if if you gave me free time, like right now with my free time, I'm like creating stuff, right? Because yeah. I love creating stuff. But 
a person who doesn't create stuff, they're not lazy. It's just that they're not built the same way, right? right. They would happily work on something. Like if you right. created something and you inspired them, they'd happily join you. It's like, sure. Yeah. Like, I'll, like, you know what it's like? It's like these, uh, it's like these roadies, right? It's yeah, like, yeah. you've got yeah. the band, right? <laughs> like you've got the band, they're five people, right? But then you got the roadies and it's like 120 people driving like 18 wheelers from city yeah. to city and they're screwing together the stage every night. And the type of person who runs lighting that person loves running lighting. Right. He just wants to run lighting every night. And he doesn't care if he listens to the same fish songs for 30 years. Yeah. You know, like he loves that life. Right. And the problem is we're soon going to have robots being roadies. And then this whole claim that, oh, the roadies just go do something creative. Like they become the rock stars. <laughs> it's like, OK, like <laughs> that's just not how that's just not how we're built, you know, and we no. have to have more compassion for that. We can't yes. judge the roadie that loses their job by saying, oh, now you're lazy. Now you're just at home playing video games, right? right? We got to say, you know, what is the inspiration in this nation that we can go like everybody has a part in it? You know, that's yes. the key. Like, what is the thing we're going to be inspired to do that everybody has a part? And, you know, here's the super dark dystopic side, right? Is I could be a cynic and I could say, you know what? I know one thing everybody has to pitch in on. That, you know, the roadie will always have a job for. And that's war. You know, right, <laughs> like right. if 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 you had an enemy coming into this country and like everybody's just got to get grab a rifle and get out there. Right. And everybody who's at home has to go to the factory to make bullets or whatever it is. Yeah. Right? Then everybody has a job, you know. And so there's a really cynical way to see that. And we have to be careful not to be tempted into, you know, these inadvertently bad outcomes. Yeah, it's the Wally comparison is interesting. It also reminds me of the movie Idiocracy. Oh, and yeah. it's very similar to that, too. It's like, man, there's a lot of uh, movie imitating future reality. Absolutely. Here. Like, did you ever see the movie Her from like 10 years yeah, ago? Right. Yeah. Like one of the most funny things is I saw that in the theater. And for a moment there, there was one short scene where everybody is walking on the public sidewalk, but they're all staring at their phones. Right. Yeah. yeah. Back then, everybody in the theater laughed because it seemed so ridiculous. Like right, it seemed so ridiculous. Right. It's like, oh, this is crazy. This is so funny. This is comedy. And then you find these days that is reality that's and no reality. one's laughing anymore. Like no. that's that's just what it's like to walk in a city now. Right. So yes. like I. I, I do think right now it's still easy to laugh at some of these movies like, oh, yeah, The Matrix, Re like Ready Player yeah. One. Oh, yeah, sure. Dystopia, you know, sci-fi. But I think we have to be very careful that it might be coming for us. Yeah. So do you think like Amazon is there? Do you think their goal potentially is to replace most humans in the warehouse with robots? Yeah, here's here's the tough reality. One, I really support the people who've unionized because yeah. the unions like people need protections. Like after right. working this job, like people need protections big time. So one, I'm supportive of uh, worker protection for sure. Right. But here's the reality. No one who supports unions is going to tell them. And here's the truth of it is you are going to raise wages. And that's awesome for the first two years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You'll have like a sweet, sweet, like the, the big raises. Right. But then like. What would you do if you own Amazon, okay? And I'm not talking Monopoly, top hat, like big, like rich guy. I'm talking you as a genuine guy who owns Amazon who wants to do the right thing, okay? If you have 12 of like, let's say 100 warehouses unionized and mm. you are designing the software that routes the packages to the different warehouses, what's the only smart thing to do? 
the only smart thing is to route the packages to the non-unionized warehouses. That's right. like the only intelligent that that's like not even a quote unquote evil thing. Like that's right. like the only reasonable thing Rational. to do, right? Yeah. Right. And then for the warehouses that are unionized, what is the only rational thing? Well, you've got a robot, let's say that costs you $35,000, right? Right now an Amazon employee probably costs them $35,000, $40,000 per year, right? Um, and so right now you're not going to replace a human because it's like not a great deal, right? Yeah. But as soon as like those wages go to 50 55 for someone in one of these unionized warehouses you've got a very good reason to put a robot in there right yeah and so that's the thing is the unions will be sweet for a few years it will protect workers they'll have higher wages and then it will at the same time it inevitably raises the benefit of replacing those people so i don't think of amazon as necessarily like an evil company out yeah. there like just hates people you know just out there to like right. be this crazy monopolist i think what it is is it's a fact that our society has not structured worker protections to be guaranteed and that's the fundamental problem like you'll remember like 10 years ago the big baddie was walmart right yes every news item you read was like yeah. walmart so evil so bad don't right. look at that plastic bag with a smiley face like that's evil right but when's the last time you heard a complaint about walmart i haven't heard it no. right and here's what happens when we publicly Twitter shame someone, right? Except for Elon, everybody else changes, right? <laughs> and so what happens thing. is like <laughs> we publicly shamed Walmart into improving their benefits, which on one hand is great. So I'm not going to look right. a gift horse in the mouth and complain about that. But here's the deal. The moment you force Amazon by publicly shaming them instead of providing regulations and legal protections for workers, if you just publicly shame them, they will improve their act for sure. But then what happens? Like some Chinese shipping company that offers like less worker protections, they start shipping the same items for cheaper, Shopify, all these other people. They just take Amazon's place. And in 10 years from now, we'll be talking about how you remember how Amazon used to be evil. Yeah. Now they're good, right? So I think ultimately these protections need to be baked in at like a national level, at a legal level, at a regulatory level to protect people. Oh, man, there's a lot going on here. So how did this working at Amazon pull you help pull you out of the spiraling depression or help kind of change your mindset yeah so you know i think the toughest part for me about depression is everybody knows the three things you're supposed to do to fix the problem yourself one is eat well right the second is sleep well and the third is exercise like no one wants to hear it because it's just like, right? Like no one wants to hear that that's the solution. Like they always want <laughs> to hear that it was because of this one thing that happened to them when they were 14 and since that time, right? But the truth is if you eat well, sleep well and 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 exercise, it's hard to remain like a super dour person, you know? It's like true. you're going to clean up a little, right? So for me, Amazon fixed at least two of those three things, which is every morning at 5.40 in the morning, I had to get up, right? And when I worked in tech, you know, most of my meetings, you know, they start at nine or at 10. Yeah. And on a bad day, if you're sick, you can just write in and say, hey, can we shift the meeting and someone will move the meeting, right? And so you're always tempted to kind of sleep in a little. At Amazon, the solution is easy. If you don't show up for even one shift, you're fired, right? Mm. So, yeah. Like, Every morning when the alarm rings at 5.40, the decision is super simple. The decision is just, should this be my last day at Amazon? <laughs> <laughs> and, and if the answer is not yes, then you get up, right? You right. get up. So I started to sleep regularly because 5.40, I had to get up, right? And at night, you are so tired. And I'm talking yeah. so tired, right? That you just conk straight to sleep. Just pow, no problem. So sleep was cleaned up. The exercise by 
10, 10 30 a.m. every day, I had hit 10,000 steps. Yeah. And so if you're talking exercise like that thing, you know, third of a mile warehouse that you're walking back and forth all the time, you will do a lot of miles every day. And so the exercise was taken care of for me. So those two out of three things were already taken care of. And I think just those things alone even already began to help me. But here's the third thing, and no one wants to hear this, and people hate me for saying this, right? But the truth is, even though I knew that I was easily replaceable by anybody, you know, the whole time they never knew my name. One guy kept calling me Peter and I kept correcting him. And I just couldn't, I just like couldn't You're convince him. Yeah. Like yeah. I just look like a Peter. Okay. But I'm easily replaceable at, at Amazon. But the truth is when I'm working there, I know that I am doing something at least moderately useful for society. You know yeah. what I mean? Like mm. it sounds dumb to say that, but someone's got to move these packages, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Boxes don't move themselves yet. Right. And so I have to move these packages and it felt very nice to do something I knew was at least contributing somehow. Right. Did you have that? Did you not? Let me rephrase it. Did you not have that feeling when you were working in tech or like at Meta or Microsoft? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of Kool-Aid in the big companies that mm. I don't want to be cynical and say that it's all BS. Right. So I think it's it's authentically meant. Right. But yeah. when a large company like Google says, don't be evil. I don't think they are really cynically saying that. Like, I think when like Sergey and Larry were younger, they genuinely meant it. Like, let's not be the bad Microsoft, right? Yeah. But what happens over time is not that the people themselves are evil. It's that the systems set them up to do things to survive that end up like, like, here's a concrete example, right? Let's suppose you're a super generous boss, right? You end up running a huge tech company and you're like, hey, we're going to pay the janitors stock options. We're going to pay everybody right. like super well, right? Even the cafeteria workers stock everybody, right? That will go great for a few years until your competitor who doesn't do that, you know, builds the same product because software is easy to replicate, right? And they don't pay the people that. So now, now what's going to happen? Like you have costs that are way higher than this other person. Your employees love you. Like you will be the biggest superstar to their eyes, right? But you're not going to be on the 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 uh, the the cover of Fast Company, like yeah. right? Like what's going to happen is your company is going to be not talked about. It's going to be a tiny company, mm. and and so by definition, by the time your company is a huge company, it has survived all of those challenges, which means ultimately that it was pretty smart with costs, right? Yeah. And in a company like a software company, the biggest cost by far is the people. Of course, the labor costs is incredible. And almost any large corporation, yeah. so it sinks things, you know, is the yeah. labor costs and people make the. So, so thinking about that, this is like current times. There's a lot of layoffs happening in the tech yeah. industry right now. What do you make yeah. of this and kind of this, this, this society we're in with this happening yeah. right now in the economy? Yeah. You know, I'm going to say an unpopular thing and people are going to hate me for this, but I think layoffs once in a while is good for tech. You mm -hmm. know, I was at Microsoft when the first layoffs happened, you know, and I was so young and naive and honestly so sort of unsympathetic that I'm ashamed to admit that I honestly thought like, well, good riddance, like let's slim this company down, you know, yeah. let's get lean and efficient, right? And now I have a lot more empathy for anybody getting laid off. Even if your job was like a high paying job and it's like, oh, stop whining, like yeah. just like work like everyone else, right? <laughs> I, I still think, you know, the thing we have to respect in America is even if you're making $100,000 a year, right? When you get laid off, your family loses health care. 
You know what I mean? So like, it is not just about like free ice cream every day. Like this is about like serious, legit things about your family. So I do not want to minimize that at all. So I don't at all mean to say that I'm not empathetic with the plight of the people themselves. If I ignore the people themselves and I just say for the industry, what's good about it? I think a few things is one, everybody in our society needs to take it on the chin sometimes to Mm. empathize with everybody else. That's the truth of it. Tech is Mm. taking off and it's leaving everybody else behind. You know what I mean? And if everybody else is going to suffer a layoff once in a while, tech should suffer a layoff, you know? And like, that's more so that we understand that every company, even the wealthy ones can get fat and need to like think about costs, right? And the second thing that I think personally is good about it is it honestly increases everybody's happiness. You know, mm. it's like, here, here's the deal. Like two things can happen to you. And, uh, you know, I've been fired from jobs before. I, I was fired from the subway. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, how bad do you have to be for someone to fire you when you work for below minimum wage? Like, <laughs> right. you, you have got you, to man. be, <laughs> yeah, you have got to be pretty bad. Okay. So, so I am speaking as a man who's been fired before, but I think that here's the deal. When when the chopping block comes and you survive that round, you're actually much more grateful for everything. You're yeah. like, oh man, like I'm gonna stop complaining about the lack of free massages or the crazy, you yeah. know, bike locker rooms and stuff, right? But the other thing is, I think change, you know, even forced change in general, over time, if we have a growth mindset, is actually good for everybody. It's like you know, being forced out of a situation makes us open up ourselves to new possibilities. Now, I'm not going to frame it always as a good thing, right? Like the ideal world would be nobody gets laid off. That would right. be like, I think, ideal. So I'm not saying that we should just go off and lay lay people off. But I do think once in a while, um, you know, building empathy for where society as a whole is going and then also being grateful for the jobs we all have, like that is yeah. good for us. Most definitely. Here, here's a thought. Here's a question about kind of whether it's Amazon, Microsoft, Meta, whatever, how can a company become so large, so huge, and still maintain the values that they say they want to have? Right. Without, how can they do that when getting so big and breaking yeah. things during the way? Yeah, totally, totally. You know, I don't have a magic answer to it, but I'll riff on your question with a few additional questions. Okay. So like, take this, right? The Mall of America is America's largest mall, right? It's in like Minnesota or yeah. something. It has something like several million visitors a year, okay? So like just by death statistics, that means several people die in that mall every year, like in right, the mall. Right, <laughs> right, right, like, right. That right. just has to happen. You cannot have a mall that size without that happening, right? Similarly, if a company gets big enough, if you have a company like Microsoft, when I worked there was 130,000 people. Okay. That is larger than the populations of 40 countries in the world. So, you know, everything that happens in a country happens in Microsoft, you know, and so like when things are large, bad things, unfortunately happen. Now, what takes wisdom is how much of that bad, like you were saying with the curve, right? 10% great, 10% terrible. Like most of it is okay. Right. How much of that bottom 10% is really just because you're large, just because, meaning mm. it's not naturally evil of you. It, it's yeah. just like, if you get, like when I was working at Microsoft, like one of one of the employees, like 
I think they committed murder somewhere, you know, yeah. and it was like shocking. Right. But if you think, man, this is as big as 40 world countries, then is a murder ever going to happen? Yeah, yeah. Like, kind of. And it's bad. Right. Now, if Microsoft employees murder people way beyond the normal population, then you've got a real question. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. so like the problem is Amazon right now is the nation's largest private employer over a million employees. So everything under the sun is going to happen. So I have no doubt that the, the truck driver who said he had to pee in bottles, right. That's a legit thing. And someone's sure. going to pee in bottles. Okay. Um, but the question is, does the company systematically make you pee in bottles? Like, that's the question. And I think you're right to ask, like, is it possible to get that large without it? And I don't know if it is without yeah. compromising your principles. Let me give you a parallel. Like, I think most politicians get into politics probably because when they were young, like young Obama, they yeah. really saw things that they wanted to change and they believed they could do it. Right. So I believe I, I'm not a cynic. I don't think these people get into it, quote unquote, for the power. I think they all start as like 21 year olds that are like, let me fix this neighborhood, you know. But what happens is over time, how are you going to become like a huge leader in Congress without compromising some things? Yeah. You know, we blame politicians for flip flopping and compromising. But the truth is. You're not going to be there if you don't compromise on something, because right. like if you hold your 100 percent, you you're you're like absolutely immovable the entire way. Right. People may respect you for, quote unquote, never changing, but they're not going to get anywhere in politics, because in order yeah. to get large things done, you have to get people who disagree with half the things to at least sign on for a little while to the thing you think is going to improve the country. Right. Yeah. I think it's the same for a company which is once you are a million people large, there's no single decision you could possibly make where 100% of the people are like, this is amazing. Yeah. This is like unilaterally great, right? There's always going to be compromise. And in those compromises, when we observe from the outside and we only see the bottom 10% of things happening, it of course looks terrible. Like it looks horrible. But I think what's hard, what I found hard as a manager of large teams is most people who haven't done the job don't understand that you are choosing between two evils all the time. Yeah. It, it, it is not like there was a slam dunk decision and there was a terrible one and you, because you're terrible, you chose a terrible one, right? It's yeah. like really smart, well-intentioned people are trying to do the right thing and they chosen the lesser of what they think are the two evils and then everybody boos them for the downsides of it. Yeah. Here's another, th I mean, this is, this is giving me so many thoughts here. I mean, is have you ever seen a company that you said, man, this is this could take off. This could be big that decided to never take off purposely yeah. and yeah. to say, hey, because I know if we take off and we do this, something is going to change fundamentally about who we are. And I don't want that to happen. Yeah, totally. You know, I personally have not, but I've read about them. And here's the hard part with them is that you will have a hard time finding them because they remain small. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm sure the country is filled with small business owners that say like a common thing is like, let's not open the second restaurant. Right. Right. What will happen with the second right. one? Is, I, I can't manage both. And, and so like if I can't manage both, I can't have them feel equally the same. I'm not going to open a second restaurant. But because the person decided not to Roy Kroc the whole thing, you've <laughs> never heard of them. Right. Like it's some Indiana restaurant, you know, in yeah. the middle of nowhere that everybody loves. Right. And, 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 and here's the thing. Everybody keeps telling them to open a second branch. That's the thing. Every big fan is like, this restaurant's amazing. You should totally open a second brand, right? <laughs> so not, not only do you feel the pressure yourself because success, like I don't think you're chasing money when you open the second restaurant. It's like you've hit magic where you are contributing to the world in a way that only you can do. 
Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And that feels great. It's like, you know, the thing I love doing now people love, people I want to give this yeah. love to more people. Right. Yeah. And so your fans are saying, do the second restaurant. You yourself are thinking like, oh, this would be so great if more people could try this food. Right. But the truth of it is once you own four or five of them, you realize, wow, what are you doing all day? Right. <laughs> I think it, it, it was Annie Dillard that said something like the way you spend your days is the way you spend your life. Interesting. You know? And that's the truth of it is the substance of how you spend each day hmm. ends up being how you spend your life. Right. And so as a restaurant owner of six restaurants, what are you doing? You're mostly scouting out the next place. Yeah. You're like dealing with the toughest employee issues that the local restaurant manager right. can't deal with. Right. So you're dealing with those guys. Right. You're dealing with like, I don't know, people complaining. Right. The lawsuits like that yeah. is what you're spending your day doing. You're not cooking anymore. You're not right. you're not even seeing the customers. Right. And back to your question about like, what about uh, like motivation at Meta or Microsoft? Right. The thing that's different with that work, the reason it didn't feel the same way as Miami. Amazon work is it had some great fulfilling moments, but also so much of that work is indirect from its impact. Like, you know, I got to a point in the London meta office where I was in a meeting. I had a Zen moment in a meeting where yeah. I figured out that what I was trying to convince people of was the rate of hiring of interns that would impact the company 18 months from that date. You know, so the types of decisions you're making are so abstract. It's like, if we do this today, then like in 2025, this will happen. Right. Yeah. And by the time 2025 comes around, A, you're probably not at the company. B, if you were, you probably forgot you made that decision or it's like, <laughs> oh, thank goodness, like this happened. Right. So it's so abstract. Whereas when when you make a Subway sandwich or when you move a box, like you've moved the box and the box wouldn't yeah. have moved itself. You know, right. so I I do think there's that aspect of it, but this becoming large, your whole question around, is it possible to maintain that virtue and that initial dream? I believe it absolutely is. And that mm -hmm. Americans do it every day, you know, yeah. small shop owners, small business owners, they do it every day, but they are just the unsung heroes of our country because we never learn about them. They never yeah. become the Waltons. Right. And, and so right. the problem is we can't go out there thinking that America just can't do this. America does this all the time. It's just that we don't hear about them and we have to make that decision for ourselves is the key. Yeah. We have to Gandhi this whole thing and be the change we want to see, right? And so we've got to make that decision for ourselves. What do you think, speaking of movies like Wally and Idiocracy, what's the future of the tech industry and how it it functions in our society? Just, a, just speculation, you know? Yeah, totally. I think we are quickly headed toward a world where a very small number of people will run everything. And the reason is unless we change the rules, right, that's what's going to happen. So take take like way back when I started at Microsoft in 1997, right? America's biggest coding job was what was called a visual basic coder for office, okay? So every little company, like if you work for T-Mobile or if you work for, I don't know, like a non-tech company, right? Like a logistics company. Yeah. Every company had one guy in the back office who ate ramen all day who like <laughs> codes the visual basic, right, you know? It's yeah. like, right? That that That's the bearded glasses guy, right? And so what happened then is Visual Basic for Office, nobody does it anymore because companies like Salesforce and whatnot, what they did was they built generic software that every company can use to do those jobs. And so all of a sudden, you know, 300,000 people are out of Visual Basic jobs and maybe 5,000 people are working at Salesforce, building the same thing, right? Now, this is going to happen again where those 5,000 are going to become 50 people. And here's yeah. how. Did you know that since last year, 
Google's Alpha Code, which is a derivative of their Alpha Zero, which played right. like chess and Go and all this. Yeah, yeah. Their Alpha Code has been secretly beating 40% of coders in online coding competitions. Whoa. On its own. Okay. Wow. And this is not like a guy telling the software, like, oh, this coding problem is about sorting, you know, caterpillars or whatever. This is literally giving Alpha Code, they literally give it the same text the human reads. They don't even explain the text. It's like, here's here's the words that came through the internet. Now you go solve this problem. And it is beating 40% of professional mm -hmm. coders, okay? Think about where that's going, right? You think about the amount that voice recognition, voice recognition used to suck. Like 10, 10 oh, years yeah. ago, it, it, it's like a uh, uh, start program manager. Start program <laughs> yeah, it's manager, true. right? It's, it's, it's yeah. a terrible, right? Now it's like, okay. like It's good, okay. Right? It's okay. Right. It's, it's like noticeably uh, better, put it that way, right? And yeah. the thing with software is even though it's okay today, the thing you know is it's never going to get as bad as it used to be. Right. Right? It's only up, right? And so you think about where alpha code is going. Next year, it's not going to be beating 30% of people. It's going to be beating 40 or more percent of people. It's going to be beating 45. It's going to be, yeah. right? What happens in the world when alpha code beats, let's say, 80% of programmers, Right. It's going to be hard to keep a job. Like right. now, now, like you said, though, those top 10% of people, they will always be, they useful. will always, you know, be, yeah. because there are like prodigies in coding. Like there are people who will code circles around me all day, right? Yeah. They will have a job when I go and I like fix their robots for them, right? Like right. I will pick up a wrench and start fixing the robot that massages their back <laughs> when they are coding the code, right? <laughs> that is what will end up happening. So to your question, where are we going with this tech future? Unless we change laws and regulations, and this includes things like capital redistribution in the right way. This includes things like intellectual property redistribution, right? or at least the sharing of our wealth, right? Unless we change things like that, the powerful will get more powerful because it's easier to do the next thing when you have the first thing and the coders will be called out. So the mediocre coders today, like they will lose their jobs is the honest truth, right? Yeah. And they will start playing video games at home like everybody else. And then the remaining 10% of elite coders, they will make a boatload of money because when you are one of the 5,000 people that replaced you know, 50,000 people, you know, they can afford to pay you double, like, yeah. you know, because they may 10x, so they'll give right. you like a little bit, right? Yeah. And, and so when you replace those 5,000 and you're one of the 50, like, think about how much money you are talking about making. So there's going to be this huge bifurcation in society of people who live in the stratosphere and people, you know, the little people like us who are like playing video games all day. Now, yeah. that doesn't have to be our future, but I think we collectively, what we are bad at. So what America is great at is being open-minded and changing over time, right? right. Like, like we are always moving forward. But what America is bad at is we often react a little slow to things. So yes. what will yeah. happen is we won't turn around and fix this until it surprises all of us, which is mm. why I'm so glad you and I are having this conversation because yes. I feel like people need to get together and start asking for that change now because we cannot wait until that Ready Player One has already happened to say like, <laughs> oh, maybe we should change some laws and blah, 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 right? We've got to like dampen this, flatten the curve a little bit and smooth it out for everybody. But it feels like when you said it hit me when you said, you know, the decision making, essentially the power will be basically put together by very few people. There'll be very few decision makers. They'll be the most powerful people. They'll be their kings of their own universe, essentially. Right. It feels like that's already happening, you know, yeah. in, in many ways. And I just I feel it happening. And so the other thing yeah. is you never know you're being these things are happening until it happens. 
It's like you don't realize you're becoming your parents until you become your parents. <laughs> right. Un until those same words leave your mouth. One right. Day. <laughs> but how can we not let that happen where it's like, yeah. all right, I see this coming. Yeah. What do we do about it? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you're absolutely right. And uh, you're absolutely right. And I'll riff on that one more, which is, you know, I have a Tesla Model 3, right? It is same the best here. car. Yeah. It is the best car I've honestly ever owned. Same here. Thing, right? Now, <laughs> yeah. now, see, here's the deal, though. If Elon hadn't happened to that, would electrification of cars have happened anywhere near as soon? I don't right. think so. I don't think like, so. No. Like GM and Ford swear to you that they always had it on their plan. No way. But that's like, no way. That's like Exxon Mobil saying that green was always on their plan. Right. It's like, okay, right, okay. Yeah, yeah no okay. Way, you, you and your solar panels, right? So the Model 3 happened. I love that thing. So would I want him to not have had the money to actually bail Tesla out of bankruptcy in the times when right. it almost went bankrupt and he bailed yeah. it out with his own money? Right, with his own money. Like, yeah. right? That thing is honestly a huge improvement on the world, okay? So like, right. I'm thankful that happened. Now, should we go and say we mow everybody down so that like th that sort of stuff can never happen, right? Yeah. I don't think that's the right answer, right? But then here comes the uncomfortable part. Big pharma, right? Charges us mm -hmm. through the nose for all sorts of medication. Now that is true, but here's the deal. If there wasn't big money on the other end, why would they be investing in researching the new medications? Yeah. Where would this mRNA vaccine stuff have come from if they didn't have a bazillion dollars in the bank where yeah. they knew if they were the first to get this thing, a bunch of money was going to come, right? Right. That's the only reason they did that. That's the only reason they did it. So the problem is we can't go too extreme and kill the golden goose. You know, yeah. like America, democracy is not evil. Capitalism is not evil. You know what I mean? Like people have to stop saying that capitalism itself know, is the that's problem. That's a very cliche thing to say right now. Right? It is rampant capitalism that is not compassionate. That's the problem. Mm. You know what I mean? Like we yeah. cannot have just literally rampant get like if your child is nine and they can work for a buck, then they can work <laughs> for a buck. It's like, right. no, like that, no. that that would be like morally wrong. Right. Right. But we cannot throw the whole baby out with the bathwater and just say, you know, haircuts for everyone. Everyone makes the same amount of money. Right. We've tried right. that experiment so many times times in the 20th century so many times and not a single time has the experiment come up with the powerball you know what yeah, i mean like yeah. america is the powerball of like how we run this world and i think we got to get back to believing that we can do it most definitely philip i mean this has been an amazing conversation seriously if it was just rich with ideas and and different aspects it told your story but also the larger picture of society at the same time and that's yeah, a great and, conversation and I'm so thankful for you engaging with me on this because I feel like yeah. it's critical. And here's the deal is unlike uh, unless people like you ask these important questions and really get to the bottom for all of us, what will happen is the little Twitter sort of tweets that are just angry yeah. and that, that, that just blame the wrong reasons. We're going to end up angry at our fellow Americans for the wrong reasons. That's right. You know, the billionaire that creates a Tesla Model 3, he's not literally out there to ruin your life. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> he is trying to do something he thinks is good. Now, he need some guardrails probably right sure but we but, but we can't kill the golden goose right we need right. to like bring back to america what's great and i appreciate you engaging with me on this conversation which i just absolutely loved yeah same here please tell everyone how they can connect with you and your story philip yeah, totally. So if they want to follow up, I did a podcast called Peak Salvation, which is just a short mini series that tells you all about the actual job itself. The one time I was tempted to pee on myself for the story, but I <laughs> right. resisted, right? Right, right. And all the other abuses, honestly, that happen in a warehouse and the difference in tech in like making money and thinking you're going to be happy, but finding that you aren't. So peaksalvation.com is where they can find me. And they can always reach out to me at philip at peaksalvation.com. Thank you, Philip. I really appreciate it, man.
Awesome conversation. Right. You'd be well, Thank man. Thank you. Yeah. Take care there. Have a great day.